If you have your Bible, I invite you this morning, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one around you, not far from you, either in front or behind you, uh, in the rack of a chair around you somewhere, hopefully. Um, and we'll be in the book of Joshua chapter 1. The Bible is one book made up of many books. One of those books is called Joshua. And uh, if you don't know where that is, you just kind of go to the table of contents and turn over to there and we'll be there in just a minute. Um, this past week, or actually this past couple weeks, uh, I found myself having the uh, task of purchasing a major appliance for our home. And um, this uh, comes up from time to time, one of the joys of home ownership, and maybe you enjoy it, maybe you don't. Uh, but it had come to my attention, the uh, oven that was in our home when we had purchased it had definitely uh, served its time, and now it was time to replace it. It was probably actually time to replace it about a year ago, um, but I stretched it out, and, uh, and so had to, had to do that, had to make that purchase. I don't know what you do when you have to make a major purchase like that either for your home or maybe it's a car or maybe it's, you know, some other major thing, uh, electronic device that you're buying. You know, I think everyone has their own kind of, you know, probably grid that they go through, you know, what your decision-making process is. You know, I don't know if you choose one based on the color. Maybe that's all that's important to you. Like, what color? Is it coming stainless steel or black or white or teal or whatever? Uh, maybe you choose it uh, based on a recommendation of someone else. You know, you look and you talk to people, you know, what do you like? In fact, I see that sometimes, you know, on social media, Facebook, or so someone will put on, hey, what kind of washer do you have? What kind of dryer? What kind of dishwasher do you have? And, and uh, you know, kind of take a survey that way. Maybe that's you. Uh, you look for uh, all kinds. Maybe you just replace what you have. I don't know how you make that decision. For me, it's research, uh, which is probably why after a year, I'm finally getting around to replacing it. But... I'm a research person, so I find we need an oven. So my first thing, you know, I go and I subscribe to Consumer Reports for a month, and I'm reading up on every single oven and uh, every single one, and I'm comparing them, and I'm comparing the features, and I'm driving my wife crazy, um, and I am going to the store uh, several times taking my family with me, and we're driving by, I'm like, hey, let's just pull in, you know, let's just, we're on our way, we'll pull in, we'll ask some more questions. Uh, I talk to salespeople, many salespeople, all the salespeople, really. Um, <laughs> talk to all of them. Uh, and I'm pretty sure by the end of it, there's two things that they're sure of. Uh, one is that they all deserve the commission, uh, and that two is it probably wasn't worth it. Um, <laughs> I usually ask a lot of questions. Uh, and, 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 but when it comes down to it, there's often what we come down to as like a cost-benefit analysis, right? How much is it going to cost and what's the benefit? You know, so in my situation, you know, you know, pay a little more money and you get convection oven and it has one fan or two fans. And, and this one costs a little more, but it has something uh, called bread proofing. I don't even know what bread proofing is. I don't know how to prove bread. I don't know why you need to prove bread, um, but it's a feature. I, so, you know, I'm like, well, we usually buy bread. We don't have to prove bread. And, and so I don't know if we need that one. This one comes with a probe. That's kind of cool. I don't know if I'd ever use a probe. It looks like it's, I don't know, you know, you pay more for that. But it's cost-benefit, right? Pay more and you get this, you pay less, you don't get that. And we often use cost-benefit analysis when we have to make decisions. 
We often look at it and say, okay, how much is it going to cost me? And what am I going to get? Is it worth it? Is it make sense? Am I willing to pay the cost for what I'm going to get back? We do this when we buy things. We don't only do this then, though. We do it everywhere in life. We do it in relationships. We do it, you do it on your calendar. Someone calls you. Hey, uh, uh, we're moving. Uh, Can you help me move? And, you know, depending on the relationship and depending on what's going on, you're, you know, you're, you're, they're going to say the date and either you're hoping you have something or you're hoping you don't. You know, you're, you're, it's a cost-benefit analysis, right? Can you help me pick me up from the airport, drop me off at the airport? Cost-benefit analysis. Relationships we even do it in. This past week, many of you, maybe like me, uh, went to uh, a store and bought a Valentine's Day card. Uh, guys, if you did not do that this past week, you can probably get a pretty good deal on one now. <laughs> and if you didn't do it, you should probably pick up a couple. Um, consider a few, maybe, maybe some candy. Uh, but I went to the store, I got a Valentine's Day card, right? And here's the thing that drives me crazy sometimes about cards, like Valentine's Day cards or anniversary cards or birthday cards. Um, when I'm getting them, especially for my wife, that I read through them. That is, I only buy Valentine's Day cards for my wife. I'm not buying Valentine's Day cards for anybody but my wife. Um, if I need to clarify that, it sounded weird in my head, maybe not to you. So when I'm buying Valentine's Day cards for my wife, um, what drives me crazy sometimes is you read the card, and so often it says things like, um, you make me feel, or you, it's so great having you in my life, or what you do for me. And at first you're like, oh, what's the big deal with it? And I'm like, well, because it makes it seem like the reason you're great is because what you can do for me. Right? Right? It's always like, this is what you do for me, so I love you because this is what you do for me, because you make me feel this way, because you do this for me. And, and I read that and I'm like, whoa, wait, isn't this supposed to be about the other person? But it's, what's true is we do it in relationships too. It's this cost-benefit analysis. What's going on? What happens? Is it worth it? And we do this all the time. We do it everywhere. We do it in our calendar. We do it in our relationships. We do it in our purchases. We do it everywhere. We might even do it when we come to church. We might even do it when we come to church. That when you come to church, maybe when you first started coming, or maybe when you come every week, you're asking yourself, is this really worth it? Like, I got a shovel, and it's snowed out, and it's cold, and the roads are going to be bad, and is this worth it? Like, what I'm doing this, and we do this maybe cost-benefit analysis. We do it in all these places. Should we do it when we come to church? And you're immediately looking at me as a pastor, and you're going to say, of course you're going to say we shouldn't do it. And I might surprise you and say, I think it's okay. I think there are certain places where it's okay. I think we all do it and have all done it. And probably the first time you came to church, you were thinking, what's in it for me? Why should I go? What's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? 
And actually, there's lots of things that we talk about. There's lots of things. You come to Christ, you come to Jesus, there's lots of things you can expect to get out of it. We talk about salvation, and that's important, peace and hope and love. Talk about the presence of God with you. Talk about strength and courage last week. Lots of things we talk about that are benefits, and you get out of following God. There was a place in the scriptures where uh, Jesus' followers actually came to him. And kind of came with a question that was exactly like this. It's in Matthew chapter 19. You don't have to turn there this morning. It's not our main passage this morning. But I just want you to see that there are times when even Jesus' followers came to him. He was teaching. And his followers came to him. And Peter said this. Peter said, we have left everything and followed you. Talking to Jesus. What then will we have? And Peter is essentially saying... Jesus, you know, I left the fishing nets. I left the fishing business. My parents had a pretty good thing going with this fishing business. Probably would have passed it down to us. You know, we had a lot of good things going. We left all of that, left our families to follow you. What's in it for us? What's in it for us? And you might expect Jesus to be like, Peter, how can you even ask such a question? But he doesn't. He doesn't push off his question. He doesn't shy from answering it. In fact, he answers it pretty directly. And he says, he says to Peter, he says, look, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, talking to his 12 disciples, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone, listen to this, everyone, that's, that's everyone, that's not just Peter and, and James and John, that's, that's us, anyone who calls Jesus Lord, anyone who follows him, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and last will be first. So Jesus doesn't shy away from Peter's question. He doesn't say it's a stupid question. He doesn't say, Peter, how could you ask that? He says, actually, Peter, it's a good question. And let me tell you, for those of you that follow me, those that pay these costs, those that forsake your family, those that your family, it costs you something, you can expect that there'll be a reward. And you can expect that there will be a word of eternal life and there will be a word in heaven. You can expect that. You don't have to worry about that, Peter. So it's not a bad question. It's not a bad question that we would do. A, it's not a question God's afraid of and it's not even one he's mad at us for asking. But here's the thing. Here's the thing I want to look at this morning and I'll ask a few minutes together. And that's this. I think often when we ask this question, we miss one very important part of the benefit. We calculate the cost, but we don't always take into account all of the benefits. And if you don't take into account all of the benefit, then sometimes you're going to look at the cost and say it's not worth it. I think we miss one very important benefit sometimes when we're doing a cost-benefit analysis of what it is to follow God. And if you don't understand all of the benefits, then sometimes You'll look at something that's being asked of you and you'll say it's not worth it because it's not worth it to me. All right, let, let me just, let's look at it this morning. I, want, I asked you in your Bibles, Joshua chapter 1, and let's look at what that is, that benefit that sometimes we miss and if we miss it, 
we may fail to do some things God's asking us to do because we don't understand all of the benefit in it. So Joshua, we're in chapter 1. I'm going to pick up in verse 10 and read through verse 18. If you're new with us in the series of Joshua, here's what's going on. God has this people, Israel, and he has promised them uh, to give them a land where they can call their own. He's promised them to make them into a great nation, all for the purpose of showing the whole world who he is by relating to this people of Israel. One very important moment in Israel's history is when they are getting ready to go into the land that God said he would give them. And that's where we are in this moment in history. And there's a man named Joshua that God has called to lead them into that place. And here's, here's what happened. Joshua chapter 1, verse 10. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all of the men of valor among you shall pass over, armed before your brothers, and shall help them. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession, and shall possess it, the land that Moses the servant of the Lord gave you beyond the Jordan, toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you've commanded us we will do. And whenever you send, wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your word, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Now that passage, if you haven't read it in a while, or even if you had, uh, or if you've never read it, may be very confusing. There's a lot of names in there, and you may be saying, what is going on? I was tracking with you for a while there. What just happened? Let me give you a quick uh, lay of the land, literally, and maybe we can understand a little bit more what's going on. Take a look at this map. Here's the land that, uh, that we're talking about. So that doesn't look like much. You may be wondering where we're at. Let's put the modern day. Here's where we're setting it in modern day. These are the modern day countries you may know to kind of give you a, a, an idea of where we are. The Mediterranean Sea there uh, to the west. And then take a look a little bit more on this, uh, where Israel is camped now. And then the next slide show you a little bit more, zoom in, here's where we are. So that's where Israel's camped. They're on the east side of what's called the, the Jordan River. Jordan River flows between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And the land that God has taken them to is just across the Jordan River on the west side. And so God is taking them over there. They're there and they're going to the land that's to be conquered is the next place to go. And that's where God, the part of the land that God had promised them. And so then you had, so there's the land, but then you had these other words in there that sounded kind of strange, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. Well, they are three parts or uh, tribes as they're called in the Bible. So Israel was broken up into 12 tribes, 
all relating to sons and grandchildren of a man named Israel. Three of those names were Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. And here's what happened. They got to the west side of the Jordan and the people of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh said, this looks really nice. In fact, people of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they say, we've got a lot of cattle, we've got a lot of livestock, we've got a lot of, uh, of animals, and this is good grazing land, Moses. How about if we stay here? How about if we just stay on the west side of the Jordan and we're just going to stay here? Would this be okay? And Moses heard their request and Moses said, look, look guys, you can stay here, but here's the problem. If you stay here, what about your brothers that have to go to the other side of the river and fight and secure that land? And, and so Moses in Numbers chapter 32 actually responds and actually gives the information and what he, he responds to them. He says, but Moses said to the people of Gad and to Reuben, it's also the half tribe of Manasseh, shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? And then he actually goes on to ask another question in, chap, in verse 7. Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? This is what Moses says. Moses is saying, look guys, you want to stay here. I understand that, but think about what that's going to do to the whole. Think about what that's going to do to all of us. If you guys are sitting here nice and comfortable and protected with your family and you're in comfort and then your brothers, they got to get ready to go to fight. They got to get ready. They got to put their lives on the line in order to, 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 to secure the place for their families. They're not going to want to go. They're going to say, well, why don't none of us go? Well, you know why? Forget about what the Lord promised. They're going to be discouraged. And is it right for them to go and fight and you and sit here? So this is what Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe Manasseh said. They said, look, this is what we'll do. Our wives and our children will stay here. But when you go and fight, we'll go and fight with them. When our brothers go and take up, and they have to go, and they have to go, we'll go with them. We'll go with them. And, and we won't let them go alone. And so they told that to Moses many years before this incident with Joshua. And so now here they are. They're on the brink of crossing the Jordan River. And just before they do, Joshua calls these two and a half tribes to himself. And he said, look guys, this is it. You got to make good on your word. You promised to do this. And this is the time you got to make good on your promise. Are you going to do it or not? And the Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe Manasseh said, we'll do it. We told Moses we would do it. You're the leader now. Our wives, our children, our little ones, our livestock, they'll stay here. We're going to fight with our brothers. And here's the, here's the thing that I think is sometimes missed in our cost-benefit analysis. Often when we do a cost-benefit analysis, we are only looking at, what do I get out of it? What's in it for me? And here's the reality. When you are a Christian, when you are a follower of God, you can't just say what's in it for me. You also have to ask the question, what's in it for us? And what's in it for God? 
that you have to and I have to have this larger perspective that I am a part of something bigger than just what's happening to me than just what's going on to me. I have to think about more than, is this going to benefit me right here, right now? Is it going to make me more comfortable? Is it going to make me, you know, in, in a place where things are better off for me? I have to think about what's in it for us. What does this do to us? See, there's, because I think when we come to a cost-benefit analysis and we're only thinking about me, there's, there's uh, three quick things I want to share with you that are a problem with that. One is this. When we come to it and we forget about the us and we just focus on the me, we deny the reality of the family of God. We deny the reality that we're a family. Moses says, uses the familial language. What about your brothers? What about your brother? They're not literal brothers. I mean, they're connected, you know, years and years and years ago, but they're not literal brothers in, in the sense right now they, they, they share the same exact parent. It's familial language with the people of God. What about your brothers? They're going to go fight while you sit. And I love the, I love the contrast. He says, they're going to go to war and you're going to sit. And that's not right. Because that denies the fact that you're a family. God uses a lot of metaphors in the Bible for the people of God, but probably none more than family. New Testament, brothers and sisters. God is the father. Jesus is our brother. Constantly using this language that we're a family. But if we're only in it for us, if we only look for what I can get of it, get out of it, then it's not a family. It's a bunch of independent contractors. It's a bunch of people that are just in it for themselves and not in it for everyone else and that denies the reality of the family of God that God has said we're supposed to be. Here's one of the beautiful things about the church. One of the beautiful things about the church and the people that God has tried to create is that we come from all different places and we come from different nations and different races and different ethnicities and we come from different backgrounds and histories and economic places and God says when you come together and you come to God that you become a family. Brothers and sisters. And I know when I say that word, not all families work like families should work. I know that. And for some of you, it's a poor example because you're going, man, if we're supposed to be like a family, my family's messed up and we don't, you know, that's, I understand there's all kinds of problems in families. But when a family's working the way a family is supposed to work, they're caring and concerned about each other. And Moses is saying, look, your brothers shouldn't go while you sit because that's not how a family works. And when people in following God elevate our personal comfort over caring concern for others in the family, that's not how a family works. That we can't elevate our personal comfort beyond our care and our concern for other people in the family. So it denies the reality of the family. The second thing it does Second thing it does is it's detrimental to the mission and the purpose. It's detrimental to the mission and the purpose because I can't accomplish it all on my own and neither can you. The purpose was meant to be fulfilled by the people of God altogether. And if I am in it just for me, then it's going to be detrimental to the mission and purpose God is trying to accomplish. The truth is that God wants us together to be about to his mission in the world. 
of showing people and sharing the love of Jesus with people. In fact, he said the way that we love each other will be one of the key ways that that'll show and share the love of Jesus. The truth is none of us are as good as all of us. In fact, this is true not just in the church. This is true in all kinds of spheres in life. Um, there's a study uh, that Adam Grant highlights in his book, um, Give, uh, Give and Take. Uh, he wrote a book called Give and Take, and he, he highlights a study uh, about two groups, a surgeons and investors. Surgeons and investors. And uh, one uh, group of Harvard researchers was doing some research, and they were doing some research on surgeons, and they wanted to know the answer to this question. Do surgeons get better with practice? Specifically, do heart surgeons get better with practice? So they did a survey of hundreds of doctors and they used the cardiac bypass as their, as their control uh, surgery. For over 40,000 surgeries, different hospitals, different docs. They wanted to know if they get better with practice. And what they found is the average doctor, the average heart surgeon, the average is uh, that 3% of the people would die during this procedure. And what they found that these guys, when they would do surgeries, that sometimes they would be at that 3% level and sometimes they would be a lot better than that. And there was very particular things that would affect that, but it was not what they thought it was going to be. They found that when they moved to different hospitals, that their rate got worse. Because they checked them, because they'd often go to different hospitals. And when a surgeon would move hospitals, that he would revert to being kind of an average surgeon and not be at the top of his game. Another group of researchers were doing the same thing with investors. They took the top, they took some of the top 1,000 investors at 78 of the top investment firms, people that were earning somewhere between two and five million dollars a year investing and managing money, and here's what they found. That they were excellent investors, they were at the top of their game, but they, when they would change firms, that their quality of work would go down and it would go down for about five years. That they wouldn't be as effective as investors. And what both these researchers found independently of one another and what they weren't really looking for is this. That it didn't come down to the individual being the best of the best when it came to being a surgeon or an investor. What it came down to was did they have a team of people around them that they were familiar with and working with because when the surgeon was in the hospital with the team that they were used to working with, the nurses, the anesthesiologists, the other doctors, the residents, when they were in that place, then they were the best of the best. But if you move that same exact surgeon and you put him someplace else with some other team, then he goes back to being just a regular surgeon. And the same thing happens with the investors. And here's the point. It's not about how good you are alone. It's not about how much you can accomplish alone. It's the fact that when we fail to take into account the benefit of the us and not just me, that the mission of God is hurt. The mission of God is hurt. So if I only take into account how does this help me, then I'm gonna fail to do the best we can to accomplish this mission God has called us to. Third thing is this, so it denies the family of God, it's detrimental to the mission, but when I only take a cost-benefit analysis of what's useful to me, the final thing is this, it's diametrically opposed to who God is. I am living my life diametrically opposed 
to the example that my Lord gives. Jesus, um, uh, Paul in, in Philippians chapter 2 talks about the life of Jesus. And uh, he's writing, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Or you can go to a verse that may be more familiar to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. And here's the thing. When God did the cost-benefit analysis, he chose to come and live and give his life so that you and I might receive the benefits of salvation. He came to pay a price that sacrificed much so that we might receive much from God. So if we live our lives saying, only saying, what's in it for me? We're living diametrically opposed to the God that we say that we worship and serve. Because that God gave everything so that his creation might have the opportunity to be reconciled to him. And so we live our lives, we are also called to live our lives that way. The benefits of interdependence are worth the cost of independence. The greatest benefits come when we are under, uh, interdependent on one another. Um, and so as you and I live our lives, what we are called to do is fight for one another, help one another. And here's the thing, this isn't a thing about guilt. It's not about guilt. It's not about, well, you've got so much so you should feel guilty for those who don't. You know, Linnea just came and talked about Swaziland and going serving in an orphanage. It is not about, oh, we feel bad and we've got so much, we feel guilty so we should go and do that. Uh, it's not about guilt. It's about being commanded and being a part of this family that loves one another. See, here's the difference. Because when you feel guilty about something and you do something, you will do it until you don't feel guilty anymore. But when you are committed to someone and you are committed to a family, then I'll do it until you are actually helped. I'm not going to do it just until I don't feel guilty anymore. I'm going to do it until you're actually helped because I'm committed to you. And this is the kind of family that God calls us to. And this is the kind of love that God calls us to. That we're to do this. And we're to share and we're to care for one another. That as Christians, we must not elevate our own personal comfort over the concerns and cares for those in our community. It means being careful when I have my resources, my time, my talent, and my treasure, that it's not all governed by the question of, now how can I use this to advance my comfort? But we must consider with all that I have been given, how can I help others and love God? So what's it look like? I'll just close with a couple of thoughts on what that can look like. Um, 
just on a, let, me, let me tell you on a church level what this looks like sometimes as a pastor. Uh, last October, if you were here, we have our, every October we have our global outreach emphasis and many of you committed uh, faith promises and, and funds to be able to support uh, the work of God around the world and actually the funds that came in were over 10% more than what was committed the year before. So that gave our team some options and some things that we could do uh, that we haven't been able to do in the past. So this week I got an email uh, from our global outreach team. And I guess got an update on what some of the things we've been able to do. And uh, so they said that one thing we were able to do is this week we sent $1,000 to uh, a church in uh, the Boston area that is endeavoring to reach and start a church in Boston specifically focused on uh, uh, Berkeley students in that area of Boston and endeavoring to reach them. And we said as a church, hey, we want to support the work that you're doing. It's not necessarily uh, uh, going to benefit us directly, but is it a kingdom work? There's another church that's trying to get started in West Hartford and they contacted us and said, we want to start, you know, this church called Essence Place and we want to reach the people of West Hartford, Connecticut and West Hartford needs a church. And so we were able to say, we're going to send $1,000 down to West Hartford and help you guys because we believe that it's a kingdom purpose and we're a part of a bigger plan. And you know what? We're not just the only ones doing it. People did that for us. When we started Belmont a couple years ago, there were a couple churches locally that came to us, uh, Calvary Church there on, uh, on your left, uh, said we're going to, you know, they're up in Linfield, and they heard about what we were doing in Belmont, and uh, Pastor Tim in Calvary said we're going to send you guys $5,000 to help use it however you need it. And then that other church, New Life Church, is out in New Day Churches in Springfield. They actually meet at the Basketball Hall of Fame there in Springfield, or they were. They just got their own building. And they said, we heard about what you're doing out there in Belmont. Belmont's nowhere near Springfield. No one's commuting from Springfield to go to Belmont. But we are in the same harvest field. We're trying to accomplish the same mission. They sent us $5,000. Said, use it however you want. We used both of those gifts to put a new sound system on the Belmont campus that they used there this morning. Why? Because we're in this thing together. We're in this thing together. The other thing the missions team did this week, they said we sent money to some missionaries that have come off the field, that have retired. And, uh, and you know, when you're a missionary on the field, you don't, you don't put a lot of money into a pension. Hard to pay into a 401k when you're on the mission field doing the work of God. So you come back, you, you know, you, you can't be on the field anymore. And what do you do? And you can't go and raise support for work you already did. And so we sent some gifts to these missionaries Say, hey, we're a part of who you are. We're a part of what you've done. We don't, we're not forgetting about what you've done and who you are, and we want to be a part of that, and we want to support that. You know, it's a part of being a part of the body of Christ. One last one. This past, there's a missions partner that we have a relationship with that a year ago this past Monday, Monday, February 12th, a year ago Monday, uh, this person that we have a missions relationship with was captured. Um, he was, there's no other word for it. He was captured. He was taken. It was an extremely orchestrated, we have video footage of it. It was an extremely professionally orchestrated capture. Traffic was stopped. Cars were stopped. It happened in about 90 seconds. He was taken. He was in a car. He was gone. And we haven't heard or seen from him since. And we have every reason to believe that this is directly related to the Christian work that he was doing in that country uh, for the gospel. He's got family, he's got kids, he's got a daughter that's up at Gordon College um, that is, uh, he's got a wife and other kids and it's been a year since he's been captured. We haven't heard from him. We, the government is 
saying that they're conducting investigations, but we have our suspicions that they're not really doing it. Um, and so last Monday night, a bunch of people from this church got on a conference call and, and with people around the world to pray and ask God to just intercede, to make a way, to show us that this guy's still alive, to be with him, to, to cover him in prayer, to ask God, him, God to bring him, unite him with his family, to pray for his family. Why? I don't know them. I don't know them personally. Not, a lot of those people on the phone don't know them, never met them. Why? Because we're a part of a larger mission. And when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. And so you and I need to remember when we're doing this analysis that it's not just about what I can get out of it. It's about us. The Lord's Prayer, many of you know it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give, what's the next word? Give us this day. What's the next word? Our. Our daily bread. Jesus taught us to pray. And it wasn't give me this day my daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not about me. It's not just about me. It's about us. It's about how we love each other, how we care for each other. And so whatever God has given you, whatever God has placed in your life, I just challenge you to more than ask the question, what's in it for me? What can I get out of it personally? To ask the question, how can I use this for us? What can, how can I help us? And it's not that some socialistic thing, like we take everything and put it all in a pot and then divide, that's not what it's about. No one has a claim on your stuff, but I will tell you there's a God who has a claim on your life. And what we have and what we've been given from him, he's gonna call to account of how we used it for him, for his purposes. And we'll be held responsible for that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your goodness and your grace. And God, I thank you because so much of us in this room, even though when we sometimes look and compare ourselves to others and we're real good at comparing ourselves to others, that we may think we don't have anything and we don't have anything to give and we don't have anything to offer and yet you have been so good to us. And if we're honest, there is so much that we have then we so much that we have to offer, whether it's our time that you've given us or the talent and skills that you've given us or resources and money and funds that you've given us. God, you've entrusted us with so much. And we live in a world that is bombarding us with the message that it's all for us individually. We live in a world that's bombarding us with the message that says just be comfortable. Just be comfortable. Just enjoy it. It's all about you. Just make it all about you and be comfortable and enjoy it and get all you can. And Lord, yet we live and we serve a God with this countercultural message that says it's not all about you. 
And you can't elevate your personal comfort beyond our concern and our care for others in the body. So Lord, would you help us to be the church that's strong and bold and courageous that will just like these two and a half tribes say we will keep our commitments to one another. We will love one another. We will care for one another. We will pray for one another. We will look out for one another. We will sacrifice our time, our talent, and our treasure to love those that are part of this family of God that we call ourselves a part of. Because we all want people to treat us like that. And so, Lord, would you make us into a church that would treat each other in that way, loving and caring for one another. Help us to do that, Lord. Lead us and guide us. Make us that kind of people that we would not only worship this God who gave everything for us, but we would live lives in light of the fact of that example and that we would do likewise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.